I'm not sure what your week has been like. If this feels like one of those weeks that's just been sort of dragged out and long, or if it's gone by very, very quickly. For me, it seems like Sundays come with great rapidity. And if we're not careful, we can just go through the motions. And if we're not careful, those of us who are Sunday morning veterans and who are here with great frequency, we can lose an expectation of God speaking to us, God revealing something to us, uh, God moving us, God correcting something, encouraging something in us, God leading us to something. And so this morning, I want us to do this. I want to ask all of us just to pause before I read a verse, before I give a word of encouragement or challenge in a sermon. And in quiet, just ask God to speak. The one who knows you absolutely, intimately, personally, in every detail, is fully aware of all that you have need of today. The one who has the ability to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory surely will respond to us humbly seeking him today. Let's pray. Father, I pause to pray this way today because I am in awe of the verses that we're about to read. And I fear that whatever I would say and however I would offer explanation, that I would not do justice to the, to the weight of these words and to the worthiness of the One who is described in them. And Father, I fear for us in listening that maybe a bit of familiarity Maybe a, a bit of just tiredness or distraction or just the weight of some concerns, stresses, worries, or fears might unintentionally stand in the way of us seeing Your glory revealed in Your Word. And so Father, I pray that You would make ready our hearts, our ears, to see and receive You. And Father, I pray that we, as we have sung, would be amazed. We'd be amazed. Maybe for some as if they have never heard it before, and maybe for some in this room who have never heard it before. We would see Jesus today. Show us Your glory, I pray, Father, in the person of Your Son, in the pages of Your book, by the power of Your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Never underestimate the power of a single moment. A single moment can change everything. Suddenly. And forever. A single conversation. A single event. A single intersection of two lives. A single act of obedience or a single act of faith. Never underestimate what God might do in just one moment that changes everything for you. One of my favorite accounts in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 8, we see the power of a moment just like this. 
two people, utter strangers to each other, lives on two different trajectories, but God who is sovereign over all causes those two lives to come together in such a way that for one of those individuals, his life will never be the same again. We find this in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so he rose and went. Important moment for Philip. Not knowing why he was going. No indication that he was going to anyone. But knowing that God had sent him to go this way, he goes. He obeys. Unbeknownst to Philip, there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? And it's a perfectly reasonable question. If any of you have read through Isaiah of late, you can find some of the words challenging. The mix of history and prophecy. Current events, spiritual challenges. It's a book of great depth. So Philip asked him naturally, do you understand this? Do you understand what you're reading from Isaiah? He said, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb, before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Father, recognizing the power of a moment, an event, a conversation, an act of obedience, a response of faith, and its ability to change everything. Father, as we hear the good news about Jesus today, may we receive it as such. May we receive it as good news. Best news. Father, may it be life-changing for us. May it renew our faith. May it encourage our faithfulness. May it call someone to have like a veil that has blinded them from seeing, removed, so they see King Jesus and what He's done for them. And they surrender to Him and follow Him and love Him and long for Him beginning today. May everything change. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage today, rightly then, is Isaiah. And in one of the great passages of Scripture in the Old Testament, one of those mountain peaks, we're going to begin today in the last few verses of Isaiah 52. You know, these next several weeks segue into chapter 53. Isaiah 52 and 53. Our text today are these verses. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred 
beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The beauty of the Gospel, that word we use for good news, that phrase we use for good news, is not just that God exists, therefore tell people there is a God. And it's not just that God has infinite power and might. He's greater than all the so-called gods of the world or all the kings of the nations. It's the sort of God He is that this God, perfect, infinite, holy, just, loves us. That, that God cares about us. That God, through the centuries of time and through the numbers of people in the billions, knows us, seeks us, desires to save us. That right now in this moment, though we are but a few of the many gathered to worship Him all across this globe, every single one of us, He knows. And He's seeking after you. And there's hope for everyone who will turn to Him. The story that we see in Isaiah unfolding is the hope of God for those in captivity. Now these events are real and they're historical, but they're also foreshadows of something much, much bigger in history. In the book of Isaiah, we see this unfolding story of what we would say is redemption, deliverance, salvation. God, through the prophet Isaiah, had promised His people salvation. First, it's a temporal sort of salvation. They were in bondage to the Babylonians because of their sin, because of their disregard for God, because of their disobedience to His laws God had allowed the wicked Babylonians to come in and take His people captive. And now, taken away into exile, they're in captivity, chapters 40 and 48 of Isaiah. And then, He promises them a spiritual deliverance through the redemption of sins. That covers the second portion of Isaiah, chapters 49 through 57. But Isaiah ends with something even beyond. Not just deliverance from earthly captivity, earthly pain, earthly problems. Not just the forgiveness of sins so that you can be justified before God. But the result of that, the ultimate end of salvation, it's ultimate. It's the rule and reign of the eternal King. And of course, that brings with it so many benefits to us because we're His people and we're co-heirs with Jesus. And we share all the benefits of the rule and reign of Christ. And this is best news. He speaks in Isaiah chapter 52 of Jerusalem. The holy city of God. The place where Jesus was crucified and died. The place where Jesus will return. Jerusalem had been conquered, overrun, corrupted by the enemies like the Babylonians. But one day, He promises that Jerusalem will be established anew. This time eternal. This time unassailable. No enemies can take it. And absolutely holy. In verse 1 of chapter 52, the prophet says, Awake, wake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Take your place. Never again will what's happened to you happen. The King is coming. And God who delivered His people miraculously, majestically demonstrating that He is the true God, King of all the earth, 
when he delivered his people from the Egyptians and their 400 year captivity, later the Assyrians, as mentioned in Isaiah, through his servants Moses, later through someone who did not even know him, Cyrus, he promises to rescue them again. He says, My rescue will not be in any way that's measured by man. This is not by money, but with something priceless, a priceless gift of redemption. For he says, You were sold for nothing. What does he mean by that? My people were treated as worthless. The Egyptians treated you as, as nothing. A commodity to be used. And ultimately, they're able to dispose of them completely. You were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there. And the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Though you were treated for nothing, as nothing, I will save you with everything most precious. God Himself, whose name was not honored as God, God who was not known by the people so He was not worshipped by them, God whose praise was not rendered, God whose commandments were not obeyed, God whose holiness was not reverenced, promises that in His redemption He's going to reveal His glory. In redeeming grace, He will show His glory. He says in verse 5, Now therefore what have I here? declares the Lord. Seeing that My people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers well, declares the Lord. And continually all the day My name is despised. In all this captivity, it looked as if God were at best absent. At worst, weak. Defeated. God was not treated as God. Not by His own people, nor for the nations to whom they were to be His representatives. He says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. Our great declaration of faith as Christians for 2,000 years has been this. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. When Jesus began to reveal Himself, His true identity among the people, what what invoked the ire, the great despising of the Jews, was that He dared claim to be God. He used that phrase that God had given only to Moses, I am. I am. I am Lord. I am the identification of that name you don't write. That you don't speak. I am the true and only God. I am. You will know My name. As Charles read just a few moments ago, this is not good news. But put somewhere in your notes if you're a note taker, this is the good news. This is ultimate news. That's why he says, shout it. Go to the mountaintops and shout it. Tell everyone this. This is what was, but this is what is to come. This is who you were, but this is who you will be. This is what you have seen or thought of God, but this is what you will know. Shout this good news. Sing this good news. For soon you're going to see it. You're going to see it with your own eyes. This is the good news. For he writes, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who bring good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation. And what is this good news in three words? In three words, he says, Say to Zion, Your God reigns. The best news in all the world. Both then and now and in the future, forever. 
Our God reigns. Our God reigns. When you're reading the news, not in a paper, but on a device, when you're watching it, when you're hearing it, what do you need to remind yourself of? Our God reigns. When you're sitting there dealing with a difficult diagnosis that you've just received, and you're not sure how you're going to handle this or how you're going to share it with your husband or your wife or your kids, what do you need to remember? Our God reigns. When you look at the futility of government and our political system, and you say, what difference does it make? Remember, our God reigns. And for those of you who are parents or grandparents, and you think about the lives that your kids are going to live one day, and the challenges they're going to face, or your grandkids, you remember this, the promise, our God reigns. And one day, all will see it. All will see it. How will God Almighty accomplish this promised deliverance? That's the question of Isaiah 52 and 53. As He breaks through in history, how will He do this? How will people be redeemed? How will they be saved? From Egypt, we know that God used His servant Moses and His mouthpiece Aaron to effect the release of His people, the deliverance from captivity. From Babylon, God surprisingly uses a pagan, someone who didn't even know of the one true God, Cyrus the Persian, as His instrument in His mighty hand to deliver His people. But as great a man as was Moses, and perhaps there's no more towering figure in the Old Testament than Moses, or as powerful a political ruler as was Cyrus, they are both yet men. And no mere man has the capacity to redeem mankind. They may be instruments in God's hands to deliver them from a temporary captivity, to overcome a political or a physical enemy. But man cannot redeem man from the greatest captivity he faces. Our great captivity is not physical. It's not political. Our greatest captivity is spiritual. Because of our sin, we have been placed into bondage and into a dark kingdom that rules over us and ultimately will destroy us And there's nothing that we can do to redeem ourselves from that. No power we possess is sufficient. No resolution we make can undo what's been done. What then can save us? Only absolute good can defeat evil. Only pure light can drive out darkness. Only the infinite God can take on the sins of all humanity that trust in Him in every generation, in every place, forever and ever and ever. John Oswalt, in his commentary on Isaiah, said God's power is at its greatest not in His destruction of the wicked, but in His taking all the wickedness of the earth into Himself and giving back love. What makes God great? That He's more powerful than the Egyptian gods and He could destroy them? No. That He's more powerful than all the false gods that the Persians embraced? No. That He can undo the work of Babylon or Assyria? No. That God, who is perfectly holy, absolutely just, is also infinitely merciful and is the definition of love itself and can take your sins and mine taking what we deserve, give us back what we absolutely do not, which is His perfect love. That's the one true God. For God so loved the world that He gave His 
only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Only Jesus, Jesus, and only Jesus can wear this disgusting and demeaning crown of thorns that you'll soon see prophesied in Isaiah. And can also wear the exalted and eternal crown of the High King of Heaven. As that Ethiopian man is reading that text, and he asks Philip, who is he talking about? Is the author of this text talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Can you imagine? Just put yourself in that seat of that chariot just for a moment. Imagine Philip. Oh, wow. I've got some news to tell you. Let me tell you who he's talking about. Let me tell you about Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53, what only God could know, what only God could conceive of, what what only God Almighty could plan, create, and cause is about to take place. And He gives us the view through the prophet Isaiah. And He starts chapter 13 of Isaiah 52 with these words, Behold My servant. I know sometimes we have a tendency to read through Scriptures quickly and we miss words that are seemingly nominal, but they're really weighty like behold. I want to show you something here. Stop and look here. Don't miss this. Behold my servant. Now in our terminology, if I were to identify someone, introduce you to someone, this is my servant, you'd probably look at them as lowly. Like, man, what a demeaning thing for him to say that that person is his servant. But to say that you're servant of the Most High God is the elevated place. This is the one that I will use. This is how I will implement my saving plan. This is my servant. And who does He reveal? Just like Philip said, I want to tell you about Jesus. Isaiah tells us about Jesus. As the unit read from Isaiah 53, Philip says, this is Jesus. And what do we know of Jesus from Isaiah 52? The suffering servant of God, who is God's Son, is never ever going to be a powerless victim to spell anything you hear about the death of Christ being on the terms of man, not on God's terms. He's never a powerless victim. He's never subject to the ignorant and evil will intentions or actions of men. Never think of the death of Jesus as something political. Never think of the death of Jesus as just simply a great miscarriage of justice. Though it was, Jesus is intentionally, strategically, and ultimately successful at carrying out the Father's plan. So when you read this in that passage, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Maybe your version says a a different word. Maybe it says he'll prosper. The idea behind acting wisely is this, that Jesus, the perfect servant of God who comes to suffer, will know exactly what must be done. And he will do it exactly. He will choose exactly the means by which we can be saved. And the only means by which we can be saved. And he will accomplish them all. 
as we go through the Gospel of Matthew in several weeks, we'll see these critical moments. Jesus fulfilling every part of the law. Jesus facing every sort of temptation. And He never sins. Jesus going resolutely to a cross, knowing what He will face there. Jesus accepting the will of the Father. Jesus being raised just as He said He would. Jesus ascended. We see this again and again. He is doing exactly. We know that Isaiah 53 will be true. The servant of God will bear the sins of many and He will make intercession for transgressors. It's not in question. It's not a possibility. It's an absolute certainty. He will do this. He will act wisely. He will carry this out. As you go back and revisit some of the words of Isaiah 52 and 53, and I know you will, I know you're going to see this text again because it's so beautiful. One of the things you're going to see, I hope you'll notice this, is that the language of salvation in Isaiah 52 and 53 is present tense. It's done. In the plan and work of God, it's done. It's a certainty. What Jesus came to do was not theoretical and hopeful. It was absolute. And it was successful. He did exactly as He intended to do. And all that God predetermines will be fulfilled. And that great message of salvation given on the temple steps by Peter in Acts chapter 2. I mean, such a powerfully ironic message from the one who was cowardly at one point, denying that he even knew Jesus. And, and that wasn't before crowds, and it wasn't before religious leaders, and it certainly wasn't before soldiers. It was before a teenage girl. But now transformed by the power of God's Spirit which had come on him at Pentecost, he stands there now in the most public of places, on the very steps of the temple, he says this, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Absolve yourself, people, of any delusion that you killed Jesus as if you had the power to take the life of the Son of God. Oh yes, you're guilty. You're guilty for your willful disobedience. You're, you're guilty for your hatred and dismissal of Him. But make no mistake about it, what we declare to you today was the plan of God fulfilled before our very eyes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and following says this, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. If they had known, if the Israelites had known, this is what God had planned from the beginning. This is what God had promised through your prophets. This is the One whose name you have not known, but now is revealed to you. This is God's Son, God's plan, God's salvation. If they had just known Titus chapter 1, verse 2 reminds us of this eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And in Revelation 13.8, we see this great division of people. The saved and the lost. The eternally glorified and the eternally condemned. All who dwell on earth will worship it. Speaking of the beast. 
everyone whose name was not, or everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Before the foundation of the world, God had the names of the redeemed written in His book. This is Isaiah 52. This is what God has done. Victory certain. Salvation assured. Done. Before the foundations of the earth. And in language that the Bible only ever uses for God Himself, for no other person, no matter how powerful or important or useful to God, no Noah, no Abraham, no Moses, no David, no Peter, no Paul, no John. God Himself, in language only ever used about Him, the suffering servant will be exalted. How do we know He's not merely a man? With the fullness of God in the flesh, Jesus, because only God receives this treatment, He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, says verse 13. And the language indicates escalating elevation. Escalating power and worship. Escalating recognition. He will be exalted. What do we know of Christ? What do we know that they didn't know? But we have the ability to look back and see through the Gospels. Jesus was raised. And the proof of every claim, the evidence of every promise, the resurrection of Jesus, He was raised. And He was ascended so that He could rule. Ascended to the right hand of the Father. Raised from the dead physically. Visibly ascended. So many saw Him. Hundreds saw Him. And what was He raised to as the angel told them? To the right hand of the Father. A picture of His current rule and reign, not future. And how will we see Him in His return? He will be high, lifted up, and exalted. And so, this good news, the exaltation of Christ, this is our sole and sufficient hope. Period. It's why we sing what we sing. It's why we say what we say. It's why we do what we do. This is our sole and sufficient hope that Christ the King will be exalted. Isaiah says this will be astonishing. Astonishing. Astonishing not just in the sense that you look at this and you go, wow, that's amazing. What, what an incredible concept. But astonishing in the sense that the means by which He will be exalted is shocking. Shocking. Utterly dismaying to so many Jews for 2,000 years. Confounding to so many of the Western mindset that think philosophically or rationally. This is, this is shocking to them. Because before He is exalted, the means to His exaltation is that He will absolutely, in a way that you will find incomprehensible, be debased in front of you. This astonishing salvation that He's promised us exacted a gruesome cost. A gruesome cost. Crucifixion. Crucifixion was an act reserved at the time of Christ by the Romans 
only for those who had no rights. A Roman citizen could not be crucified by law. Only those who had no rights could be crucified because in the crucifixion, you were not denying them of anything. You're not taking away any rights from them. And crucifixion by its nature, public, naked, violent, and vile, was designed to strip a person of every vestige of dignity and only prolong suffering. It was not intended to be a, a quick or humane death. It was meant to display a long period of dying so that people would see and be afraid. When you look at the grotesque afflictions of Jesus, I'm sure many of you have researched or read of these things. When you look at the grotesque afflictions of Jesus and all the things inflicted on Him in the Gospels, know this, far more than the seething anger of the Jews who condemned Him as a blasphemer and far beyond the notorious brutality of the Romans who adjudicated Him as, a, as an insurrectionist, far more was on display that day. There's no other way to understand those Scriptures and the violence that you see in them and the horror that's in those words than to recognize the utter malevolence and unfathomable hatred of hell. Every unholy consort of hell knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew. They knew full well that this is the One in whom all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. So that malevolence, that hatred was manifested in the macabre savagery that we see in the Scriptures inflicted on Jesus. Verse 14 says, Many were astonished at you. They were astonished. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. When they looked at Jesus and His crucifixion, no one was standing there asking, is this the servant of God? And what they were asking is this, is this even human? Is this even human? But this gruesome mercy, I mean, this gruesome suffering enabled a great mercy. The gruesome suffering of Christ enabled a great mercy for us. In language reflecting the worship of the Old Testament, Jesus, our great high priest, becomes the intercessor for us before the Almighty. He sprinkles his blood as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Leviticus chapter 16, you see a depiction of the work of the high priest on one particular day of the year called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest will offer a sacrifice of a bull for his own sins because the high priest, after all, is a man like us in need of redemption also. Not perfect able to go into the Holy of Holies. He first offers a sacrifice for his own sins, and then he takes two goats, 
By means of lots, he determines which one will be sacrificed and which one will become the scapegoat. And on that scapegoat will be placed the blood of the other of the sacrifice, and that scapegoat will be sent out into the wilderness to figuratively depict for the people the one that takes their sins away. A sacrifice received by the Almighty. Appropriation, propitiation for our sins, His wrath abated. Expiation for our sins, penalty taken away. And in that picture, we see a foreshadowing of Christ. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26 says, It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. First for His own sins and then for those of the people. Since He did this once for all when He offered up Himself. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, we see these words, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the temporary tabernacle that was movable, or even the supposedly permanent but short-lived temple. Jesus was greater than both of these. He entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Or as Hebrews 13.12 says, He suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. And this saving act depicted, prophesied in Isaiah was not just for the Jews. This is why we're listening to this text today. This is why we're hearing this and reading this today. This is why this is our good news today. The Bible says, as many were astonished at you, see this contrast? As many were astonished at you, so shall He sprinkle many nations. Again, that sprinkling is the work of a great high priest. Just as the foreshadowing of salvation took place in the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, so will real and final salvation happen through Christ. Who by His blood, the infinite Son of God, able alone to take on an innumerable, innumerable amount of sin, sprinkles His blood for us. Not just for us, but for the nations. Acts chapter 10 Peter opened his mouth in verse 34 and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. And the God who shows no partiality among nations so that this message could be translated into any language in any place and be equally true all across this globe shows no partiality in any person. In every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Romans 10.12, For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. The God who reigns, who rules over all, bestows riches and glory for all who call on Him. Not only does this gruesome 
sacrifice, enable a great mercy, it ensures a glorious future for us. Again, this is our hope. He said, kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. There is a day when everyone will see. Everyone will understand. There will be no debate, certainly no doubt. Jesus Christ will rule and reign. What once was denied will be undeniable. What once was denied will be undeniable one day. You realize that? So many reasons to follow Christ. So many reasons to believe. So many reasons to surrender your life to His authority and His goodness. So many. But none greater than this one because He alone is God. And that reality will be undeniable for every person one day. That doesn't mean that every person will be saved one day. It means that some will glory in their salvation and the goodness of God. And they'll be thankful for the grace that God afforded them, that they belong to Him. While others will mourn and weep at that which now is indisputable to them, but they refuse. He who once was rejected and ridiculed will reign over all. The Gospel tells us this. The marred one, the one that no longer looked human, will be the exalted one that truly is the Son of God. Behold, He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. On that day, every believer will celebrate the Almighty. Thank you, God, for our victory in Christ Jesus. And all those who denied will despair. On a personal level, I want you to consider just for a moment before we go your answer to this question. Isaiah 52 and 53 are the pinnacle, I think, of Old Testament prophecies regarding Christ and His great work of salvation. Not just His birth, but the purpose of His coming. His death and resurrection and rule and reign. But on a very personal and basic level, answer this question, why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? Why was the sinless Son of God treated with such contempt? Why did He suffer so egregiously? Why was the perfect man, the God-man, why was the perfect man so marred that He no longer even appeared to be human? In his book, The Cross of Christ, John Stott writes, from the human perspective, it was because Judas gave him up to the priests, who then gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers, who crucified him. But on the divine level, the Father gave him up. And He gave Himself up to die for us. To die for me. To die for you. Or as Octavius Winslow writes, who delivered up Jesus to die? 
Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. The great mark of the one true God that sets Him apart to every false God claim in history, that sets apart this faith we call Christianity from every religion in history, which sets apart our hope from every uncertain hope to the certain hope that we have in Christ for now and forever, is this. He took our sins and He gave us back His love. And we are redeemed and we are restored to the Father. And we will be raised to enjoy Him forever and ever if we place our faith and trust in Christ. One moment can change everything forever. One, one decision. One, one act of faith. One act of repentance and belief. One moment can change everything. Will you pray with me today? Father, I think of the song that we just sang. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song will ever be. Oh, Father, thank You so much for Your plan conceived in eternity. Father, thank You for mercy and grace which is undeserved. It would be so much easier to explain why none of us are saved. It would be so much easier even to, to understand in our rejection of You and our sinfulness and, and, and our rebellion against what is good, why none should have hope. It is amazing to consider Your grace for us sinners. And to look on Christ who suffered as, as sins deserve suffering for. Who was treated as the very worst of us all. Though He was incomparably the best of all. And Father, we thank You. And I pray that we understand the basis for this gratitude. We thank You that we do not gather weekly to memorialize a slain hero. We gather to worship a risen King. One day we'll see Him face to face. One day, the One to whom we have prayed, who knows us completely, we will know completely. And one day as You promised to us, it will be good for everything You do is working towards a good and glorious end for those that love You. Father, I pray maybe in this moment today, maybe a child, a student, an adult, an older adult, Feel the pull of your spirit saying today, now, 
This is for you. You need to know this. There's hope for those in captivity. I delivered nations. I showed my power in Egypt, Babylon, and Assyria. But my greatest work of deliverance is through Christ. And I will deliver you if you'll come to me. I will set you free from bondage to sin. You don't have to be that anymore. You don't have to live that anymore. I will set you free from the consequence of sin, the judgment of sin. I will pay that penalty for you. And I will do more. I will raise you to be with me so that where I am, you may also be. Then my house are many rooms and there's room for me there. Father, I pray that one would turn to You today and have their life changed forever. And Father, that every believer in this room would have a renewed cause to worship You with amazement and awe. Oh, Father, You are good. And Your mercies are everlasting. You loved us so much, You gave Your one and only Son, Jesus, to die for us. So that in believing we might not die, but have everlasting life. So may that new life begin for someone today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.